Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. On the Logistics of Logistics, I talk to experts in logistics and transportation, warehousing, fulfillment, supply chain, and of course, technology. And during these interviews, I'm always the one asking the dumb questions. I ask the dumb questions so you don't have to. Today's topic is food and beverage brand fulfillment with my friend, Ann Halleck. Ann is the chief revenue officer at Flowspace, the software platform and distribution network powering independent fulfillment. Ann and the Flowspace team are bringing a fresh approach to the food and beverage fulfillment space. They are techies born out of Y Combinator, but they are also KPI-driven operators who run a tight ship. And lastly, they are merchandising and branding gurus, which is increasingly important to all the food and beverage brands that they serve. So check out my conversation with Ann Halleck. How's it going, Ann? Joe, I'm so happy to be here. I'm excited to talk to you about this topic. We talked for a long time before we hit record. I hope I don't go way over your time. But uh, <laughs> Anne, please introduce yourself and your company, where you're calling from today. Wonderful. My name is Anne Halleck. I am the Chief Revenue Officer here at Flowspace. Flowspace is a fulfillment platform that is connected to a network of more than 150 warehouses across the U.S. I am dialing in from the very chilly Austin, Texas. We're having a little bit of a freeze right now, so it's uh, unseasonably cold, but I'm told it's going to improve. Those of us who are not in Texas or Arizona, those places, we think it's not cold where you're at, but we <laughs> recognize you guys just aren't used to it or prepped for it. I have two daughters and they live in Portland and they're like, Portland doesn't know how to do snow. <laughs> no, absolutely not. I had a flight canceled because of the cold and it's not weather that's leading. It's just chilly. <laughs> yeah. Tell us a little bit about Flow Space. You've mentioned 150 locations and who do you serve? Who's your sweet spot? Yeah, we're privileged to serve brands that are growing quickly. A very common use case for us are brands that have perhaps started in direct-to-consumer and are actually moving into retail. They've been invited into retail and have to figure out the whole new world of chargebacks and compliance and EDI. And so over the, the course of the time that Flowspace has been Alive since 2017, our, our co-founders Ben Etris and Jason Harbert were actually part of Y Combinator in the summer of 2017, and they really entered that program with that sort of classic infomercial. There's got to be a better way, which was that our, our founder Ben Etris was early at the Honest Company, and he had the exact same challenge that so many brands have now, which is that they were growing really quickly. But when it came time to source a second warehouse location across the country, he was really starting from scratch. There's no phone book that you open to go find qualified warehouses in, in 2016, 2017. And that was really where Flowspace was born. Yep. And when you mentioned Honest Company, if he's coming from Honest, that's Jessica Alba's company or she founded anyway. And I think that is one of the kind of almost the definition of the new brands that are often have some, some social mission sustainability is always a big part of it. And when I think of traditional brands like Coke or Pepsi or Chevy, those were built on TV commercials. You can't build a brand. There's not enough money these days to build a brand that way. So they're building them different ways. You seldom will see, you know, honest company on TV. I don't know if I've ever seen them, but it's, they're still trying to build a brand. <laughs> yes, that's exactly right. And what they're really doing is they're building around community 
And we'll talk about this, I think, later in the conversation, which is the social first, social media first brands are really building their community and then earning their way into retail, which is a total paradigm shift from what you're talking about, which is I was at Clorox 10 years ago. The Clorox company at the time was celebrating their 100th anniversary, and they were really only just starting to think about first party data versus just being on shelf inside a store because that's where you would go to buy a Clorox product. Yeah. By the way, does Clorox own Burt's Bees, the chapstick? They do. They do. They they said that on my podcast. I was like, I just envision Burt and his wife and kids and neighbors all coming together in some little workshop and doing all this. And then when you're like, no, Clorox is the owner. You're like, what about Bert and the kids? I'm like, I don't see it. What about Bert? That's a beautiful organization out of North Carolina. When I was there, we were in the process of actually integrating that team after the acquisition. The one that I thought you were going to ask me that people are always a little aghast is that Clorox also owns Hidden Valley Ranch. <laughs> that makes more sense to me. <laughs> Do you think it's a, a food versus a, a chapstick? <laughs> and, and it, Clorox, again, is almost the definition of an old brand. It was built with TV dollars and repetition, where you just hear it a million times. They didn't, no one's, they never said, hey, we're talking about sustainability. They probably have a sustainability goal. And they're probably very active in the community, but you just don't think of them that way. The emerging brands are often looking to do something very different. And again, building around community. I have two daughters. I can never buy anything for them through Amazon. It's always through some other site. And I always think because they want this brand to have a different experience than just Amazon. And again, when I say just Amazon, I love Amazon. So it's not just Amazon for me. I'm curious, when you go on Amazon, do you shop for brand preference? Do you have brands that you're consistently repurchasing on Amazon? Yes. And by the way, I am troubled for the brands in this regard, because like right now, I've said this many times on the podcast, but Anne, if you and I opened up a paper company and we had really cool paper and we were selling it on Amazon, when you say, I want to buy some of Anne and Joe's paper products, it would say, are you sure you don't want to buy one of these other hundred brands of paper? And by the way, <laughs> we have our home brand of paper that is cheaper and better than Joe and Ann's. And you're like, hey, thanks a lot, Amazon. It's great partnering <laughs> with you. But they're a marketplace. That's their job. They are giving their consumers choice. Now, you and I, when we go back to the office, we go, we got to get our own website up and running That's a little right. better. We need our own fulfillment. We're not selling that way anymore because, and by the way, there are big brands, Nike, Allbirds, others that are saying we need to take the experience back. Nothing against Amazon, but we need the experience to be branded. And we'll get back to that in a minute. And I think that's with companies like you. Yes, absolutely. We talk, We describe it as the balanced portfolio. And what we say is that as a brand, sure, you should absolutely be selling on Amazon. It's a channel where a consumer would expect you to be, but you also have to have other channels so that you're not completely dependent on Amazon. Very simply put, Amazon will throttle inventory. If you have a multiple product, something that melts under 180 degrees, they're not receiving that product from you between April and October, essentially the the warmer months. You have to have other channels that you're selling. They on. have what is it? I last time I looked, ninety of their own brands. 
And if you and I really were killing it on the paper and they did the analysis and they said, looks like the margins are really high on this, we're betting our supply chain can go get that paper for the same price or better. And we're right. now competing against the <laughs> the most successful company in the space, maybe in the world. Don't tell Walmart that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about you, Ann. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? Give us some career highlights before you joined FlowSpace. And then why did you join FlowSpace? Oh, I love this story. Okay, this will be so fun. I was born and raised in Santa Barbara, California. So I'm a, a Southern Californian. I went to the same high school that my parents met at. I went to Santa Barbara High. I'm the same way. I went to the same high school my parents met at. Oh, I love it. Yeah, it's funny. I actually had to transfer to attend there because I, I lived in a different part of the city at that point. But I think the most important thing for you to know me as an adult is to know that my dad was a high school football coach for 40 years. And so he was a, a football standout at Santa Barbara High. He went to Stanford to play football, blew his knee out, only played for a couple of years and actually finished at UCSB, which is how my, my family ended back, ended up, up back in Santa Barbara. And if you're raised by a football coach, Joe, <laughs> there, there's, certain, there's a certain level of intensity that you show up with. It's good. It was a lot of fun growing up. I played sports as I was growing up. I really enjoyed soccer. I remain a fan of soccer, even though I probably couldn't play a whole game if my life depended on it at this point. I'm a huge fan of Austin FC now that I'm, I'm here in Austin, Texas. And I think what was fun about growing up in Southern California and again, growing up with this football culture of the Friday Night Lights is that you really learn what they describe in athletes as equanimity, which is you might lose on a given Friday and then you're back the very next week and you're going to win. And my dad always had this goal that he would have practice on Thanksgiving because it meant that you were in the second round of the playoffs. And it was just, again, this sort of level of intensity that was very cyclical. It was that way every year. And it really informed my worldview of what it means to win and lose, which is I don't mind taking it on the chin, but I'm happy to go back out there and, and play another game. And it's been something that I think really has allowed me to show up in my professional life in a, a different way than a lot of folks, which is I have every few years I'll meet with a recruiter and I'll have people say, wow, you had a lot of different jobs. This is really exciting. I can tell that you love to learn. And then I'll have recruiters go, I don't get it what are you doing? I, you've moved around or you've worked in all these different industries. And there's this really fantastic book called Range, Why Generalists Thrive in a Specialized World. And I, I read it a few years ago and it came out and it was my a description of how I really approached my career, which is I'm not afraid to learn. I love to learn. I really had the privilege of getting to connect with people personally where I'm working with them for the second time or even the third time around in these different organizations. And so I went to UCLA for undergrad. Uh, a few years later, I went to the University of Texas at Austin for a business program. I always joke that I had to go to business school because I was an American literature major in undergrad. <laughs> Turns out that's not a job. You can't really do anything with an American lit major. Other than I, I do very sincerely think that getting to figure out how to write well and to write to make a compelling argument and to be able to articulate thoughts has been something that has served me oh, very well yeah. as well. I, I, I started the logistics as a blog. And so I wrote a thousand articles, I think, for myself and others. And I don't write right now. And I almost feel guilty like I'm not getting smarter because I'm not writing. 
<laughs> That's super interesting. Do you read a lot? Are you a big reader? Yes. Yeah, I listen to tons of books. I don't read them anymore. I listen to them. Actually, one of my daughters told me that we capture more when we listen to the books because we've been doing that since the beginning of time. Reading is relatively new for the human brain. Oh, I love that. I had to really retrain my brain to listen thoughtfully when I started listening to audiobooks. <laughs> I had a, a very long commute a few years ago. And I would notice, I don't know if this happens to you, I would notice that I would start drifting my thoughts. Yes. And then I would have to come back yep. and go, oh my I God, I missed chapter three. <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. I am famous for that too. So continue on. So where'd you spend your career before you joined Flowspace? Yeah, so I actually just shared a, a little reflection about this on LinkedIn, which is I, I came out of UCLA and recruited back to the company that owns Carl's Jr. and Hardee's. It's a, a company called CKE Restaurants that was publicly traded at the time. And I feel just incredibly lucky, almost indescribably lucky for my experience in that organization because it, it was a, a national footprint of restaurants. It was publicly traded. I was working in public relations and investor relations, but it was a very small corporation. And so I, within four years of being there, went from literally being the administrative assistant in the public relations department, not knowing anything about PR, being the person who got the coffee for the meetings, and within four years, working under a guy named Brad Haley, who was the chief marketing officer, I was actually promoted to run the public relations team at CKE Restaurants and just learned more there than at any job I've, I've ever had. Brad had previously been the CMO at Jack in the Box and then went on to be the CMO at IHOP. And he was the one who introduced a few years ago. They introduced burgers. And so they changed their name to IHOP for a while. And it was this sort of Oh, yeah, cover. I remember that. <laughs> Very clever, very sweet PR stunt. And, and that was all Brad Haley. And he was someone who was just incredibly generous with his time. Uh, he was very patient with me, who was coming out of school, being able to explicate poems and not a lot more. And I just learned so much from him. And what I ended up doing was uh, moving on to have a role that was based in the community. I, I worked for the city of Ventura. So I worked for a municipality actually during the financial crisis, which was an incredibly oh, wow. difficult time. So doing community engagement around problem solving, it's called civic engagement for a guy named Rick Cole, who, again, just a total visionary. He was the first boss I ever had who assigned me a book to read. And I was just livid. I couldn't believe that was allowed, that he was giving me homework. And he actually sparked for me a, a real passion for, we call them business books, derisively. But Rick was just a voracious reader and turned me on to people like the Heath brothers. Chip and Dan Heath wrote a, a book called Made to Stick. And it actually, to your daughter's point, talks about storytelling and how to make an impact by telling stories. And I look back on that with a lot of fondness, but it was really what spurred me to go to business school because I thought, oh my God, I'm not a fit for public life. I need to go back to the private sector. And so I ended up at the Clorox company after business school. And again, they were celebrating their 100th anniversary. And they would say, there's a Clorox product in every household in America. It's an international brand. We're known worldwide. And I got to work with some just incredibly talented folks there. I worked on the Kingsburg Charcoal brand, which was really fun. Our whole goal, this is for someone like you. I don't know. Are you a griller? Do you grill food? I cheat. I have the gas grill now. <laughs> okay. All right. So the whole insight that we had when we were there, that grilling was usually from Memorial Day to Labor Day. And we said, okay, if we can just get a few incremental 
opportunities, weeks even. And what we realized was people are really proud of grilling in the snow. Oh and yeah. So during football season, people were always posting, "Oh, I'm out on the, I'm out on my deck, and I scrape the snow off of." That my is very grill. much a guy thing. Like I want to be on my deck, <laughs> grilling yes. year round. I don't care how cold it is. I'll be out there. That's right. And short sleeves. It's <laughs> my, my apron. Looking shorts, <laughs> right? It's like a survivor man kind of thing. And so while I was there, we really lean in on relationships around sports. And so doing activations with ESPN during football season. And the whole goal was like, can you make it to grill the whole football season? And a lot of celebration around what those grilling occasions were. Because, you know, people, when you're grilling, you're having a good time. You've got a drink in your hand. You've got people over. You're choosing to be outside. And so it was, again, just a, an amazing experience to learn. Right. I just heard Tom Brady say this on his podcast, or I think he sounds serious. It's called Let's Go. And he said, there's a hundred degree temperature swing during football season. So he goes early on, it's in the nineties. And he goes, and at the end of the season, it's below zero. And he said, right. <laughs> I was like, yep, I'm a season football ticket holder at University of Michigan. So I've endured that for many years. Oh, <laughs> exactly. I feel like bragging right now. It's okay. If you're a, a national champion, you can you can be proud of yourself. Exactly. It, this is our year, so I'll enjoy it, and then it'll go away next year. But we, w- we waited a long time. So continue on. Congratulations. I'm very happy for you. <laughs> My Longhorns didn't quite make it into the finals, but that's fine. They did great, though. That was a good season. Thank you. Washington was the better team, so it was it was well-deserved. So the reason I share the the sequential story of, of where I went is that I, I actually had a former colleague at the city of Ventura reach out to me when I was at Clorox. And he had joined a startup around the same time that I had left to go to business school. And he said, hey, the startup is doing really well. We're hiring for a head of marketing. Just come hear my boss out. Just come hear him out. And I'm like, ah, I don't know. Clorox, it's 100 years old. There's a Clorox product in every household. I'd really drink the proverbial Kool-Aid. And it was an early stage advertising technology startup at a demand side platform. And I'll make this story short, which is I joined that company. And four years later, I was standing on the second floor of the NASDAQ as part of the IPO. And then today it's on the NASDAQ 100. And so it was really just a a rocket ship, incredibly successful. It's a company called the the Trade Desk. And it was such a lesson in how to manage scale. I think a lot of people think, oh, the hard part is starting. Once we're at scale, it all gets easier. And the Duke women's basketball coach, Kara Lawson, went viral a few years ago for this video that she has where she talks about, hey... It doesn't get easier. It actually doesn't get easier. It only gets harder. The only easy day was yesterday. And she talks about how you want to be someone who handles hard better. And it was just a, a real lesson in, in scale and what it takes to still be thoughtful and still be human as you're achieving the most dramatic scale that a, a company really can. And I was so lucky after I moved on from that experience to get to work with one of my former colleagues, our co-founder at Flowspace. Sarah Gardner is, is one of the three founders at Flowspace, and we were colleagues at the Trade Desk, and we left around the same time. And she said, my husband and I have this idea. 
I think we're going to go for it. I think we're going to build our own business. And it was just a, a real privilege to get to watch them stand this up coming out of, again, Y Combinator in the, the summer of 2017. I bounced around a little bit. And then when the time was right, I was able to come in as chief of staff here at Flowspace, working directly with our CEO, Ben Eichis. He of the honest company experience. And what's so fun about that is that he is a true operator. He, can't, he, he comes from logistics. I'm coming from SaaS. I'm coming from brand. And he just really profoundly understands how this has to work in order for this sweater that you have ordered to actually arrive at your doorstep. And it needs to be the sweater that you ordered. It needs to be the size that you ordered. And it needs to be delivered within a timely manner. And I think Ben just really understands the fundamentals of how that needs to look so that as we're building the software on top of it, we're really achieving something that others have tried. And what we're seeing is that we're really capturing a lot of market share right now because we're getting it right. I love it. I love it. So you mentioned Y Combinator. Tell the people who are not familiar what Y Combinator is and why it's so significant for a company to be part of it. I'm going to brag on Ben and Jason a little bit, which is they got into Y Combinator and depending on what you read, they say that it has a tougher acceptance rate than Harvard. It I does. Sort of yeah, I tease Ben. And they're smarter than Harvard apparently too. <laughs> <laughs> they tease Ben because Ben went to Princeton for undergrad. So I'm like, okay, Harvard, Princeton, you're doing all right. Um, so it's a startup accelerator. It's based in Silicon Valley. And it has been the, the moment of incubation for some of the most prominent technology companies that exist today. The, the list is long. And really to be accepted into Y Combinator, it's not just that you have a very clever idea. It's that they're interested in being part of the commercialization of that idea. And so to, to get in and then to get spit back out uh, at the end of the session, you go through something called pitch day. Uh, you're actually interacting with investors who are advising you on whether or not it's a, it's an appropriate business concept. They're advising you on, on how to actually go and commercialize. And those relationships really remain intact for as long as your business exists. Yep. And by the way, it's a, such a badge of honor for companies to come out of that because usually Y Combinator, I believe, makes this little investment in the company. So when other people, other investors see... Um, they, that a company came out of Y Combinator, it is, it's like the uh, seal of approval. So it's great. I, I think we need more programs just like it. So you touched on something earlier, and then we talked before we hit record, and I want to talk about it now, is a few years back, we started seeing the the growth of fulfillment. And it seemed like warehousing, which was like this very staid old business, all of a sudden, had this moment where it was like, like it's got to grow up. It's got to start doing same day, next day. And if you were into retail logistics, it was already hard. But now all of a sudden delivering to consumers a completely different world. It's not a whole bunch of less than truckload or truckload shipments to stores. It's delivering to homes. And for a minute, we had this discussion a few years ago. Are you a tech company or are you an ops company? And then before we hit record, we we're having the conversation is, if you're these brands that really thrive on the community they serve and having a social message, maybe a sustainability message, all of a sudden you have to get into that branding and merchandising. And so now it feels like now you have to be, depending on the product, certainly be tech savvy, certainly 
have the merchandising stuff done and you still have to be a solid operator or you're going to go out of business. So please elaborate. Uh, elaborate on uh, how to survive as a brand that needs to be everything to everyone while nailing the technology as well as the operations. You're exactly right, which is it's gotten a lot harder because the consumer expectation has risen, not simply because of Amazon, not simply because of COVID, for example. A lot of people who have watched the space have said, oh, it's this inflection point. Now everyone's going to be shopping online. And what that growth curve really shows is that a lot of people who were shopping there out of necessity returned to uh, their preferred way of shopping, whether it was in person or it was already online. Yeah. I, I also think this is so many of us work from home. And if you work from home, and obviously you live at your home, at some point you're like, I would like to go out. And my sense is <laughs> that we still want cool experiences. I might not want to go shopping for garbage cans, but What's always fun is to go to some cool boutique or some farmer's market. Not all the time. Every right. once in a while. But I want it to be an experience. I want, oh, this is cool stuff that I wouldn't normally see. But a lot of stuff, I'm just going to say, I order it and it comes to my house and I don't want to think about it. I don't need, and it reminds me, when Amazon started and they said, oh, we're going to be the world's biggest bookstore. And I was thinking, oh, yeah, that's the shopping experience we all hated, going to the bookstore. <laughs> Why replace that? Replace my trip to Kmart's. No offense, Kmart. That's right. Maybe what we hated was going to the bookstore and they don't have the book that you're looking exactly. for. Exactly. Right? That's that's yeah. true. But we still there love go. going to bookstores. Anyway. That's right. So again, you guys have to nail, because of the nature of the customers you work with, and we'll get into that in a minute, you have to nail all three. You have to have this technology that allows you to be super efficient, to get the job done. You have to have the merchandising side because, again, they want that brand experience. The same, they, they, the unboxing experience has to be good. And by the way, I just got this to whoop. You can see it if you're oh, yeah. in a good video. I, How do you like it? I love my whoop. So I got this whoop in the, whoop. it's like an Apple Watch, but I don't have Apple Watch. It's like a Fitbit. Yeah. And it's like on steroids, Fitbit. But anyway, what was interesting about it is it came in a little box. It wasn't like that huge, big box. And remember a few years ago, you're like, why is this box so damn big? But it was also fancy enough that you thought, can I throw this box out? <laughs> and then you're like, no, I guess not. I'll put it in the closet because I don't want to throw it out. I'll throw it out in a year or two. when I. And so I feel like the brands are starting to get it that I don't want the box to be so fancy that I'm afraid to throw it out. I'm laughing that hard because I just bought an Apple Watch and I literally saved the box because yeah. I was like, oh my God, I don't think I'm supposed to throw this in the <laughs> No, trash. it's too nice. It's too nice. <laughs> well, that's funny. Anyway, so we want to talk today again, the food, and the food and beverage brand fulfillment. The first thing we wanted to talk about was that it's perishable. Please elaborate. Right. I think the challenge has always been inventory holding costs. It's always been inventory management, which is the second that you have, as a brand, purchased inventory, you need to move that as quickly as you can, because whether or not it's literally expiring, like food might, or it's perishable. You were joking earlier about selling shorts in Detroit. In December or really, January. Yeah. I'm envious of whatever weather you're having that lets you think about shorts right now. That you don't want to have those inventory holding costs. And so what you're seeing, the, the bullwhip effect 
coming out of COVID was that in response to not having enough inventory, brands like most prominently probably Peloton over-purchasing and over-committing to inventory, their CEO is being excused as a result of that. But really with food, it's much more dire, which is that you have products that are, are literally not able to be consumed if they're not moving on a, a certain velocity against their expiry. It's the, tr the same is true with cosmetics, for example. Those actually have expiration dates on them as well. And then as you're selling into retail, you have shelf life expiry date, which is sell by, goodbye. And so for flow space, what we have really looked at is agreeing that a core competency as a fulfillment platform is that within the software, if I'm a brand who is selling my delicious sauces to Whole Foods, I need to understand what lot those sit in. So lot tracking, just very simply, so that if I go and I test that product just to make sure that there is quality control, I can actually, within the system, set it into quarantine so that the warehouse knows that it's there. We can see where that inventory lives, but that inventory is not eligible to actually be fulfilled into store until those test results come back or flavor profile results or whatever it ends up being. So that brand can actually manage effectively the very high burden of making sure that they're not shipping something out that isn't completely healthy and appropriate for the customer. And that also includes logic that's inside the software, first expiring, first out, FIFO logic, which allows you to make sure that if you have products that are coming up on expiration, that those are actually being prioritized. And so it just looks slightly different from someone who might be fulfilling apparel. Apparel, you might have seasonality, but the perishability isn't the same. Yeah. And by the way, when we talk about perishable food, why is food fulfilled so often? I'm, I'm assuming this is true for your company too. We used to just have food at our house, right? Mom, mom or mom, dad would say, here's the food. And now people are on, on vegan diets. People are on vegetarian diets. They're on my old neighbor is on the carnivore diet and he's done really well on it. It's good for him. I don't want to hear about it anymore, but he loves it. And <laughs> there's people who want only organic food, but, and there's people who want to sell smoothies and we all want to buy those smoothies. All of those things, all of those brands, one of their brand tenets, I don't even have to look, is it's fresh. No, none of them are like, yeah, it's vegan. It's not always fresh. It's close. It's good enough. <laughs> it, that just would not work because you're paying a premium to get the food this way. That's right. And so it just became the bar is so much higher than it was a generation ago on the quality of our food. And we got it at the grocery store. We bought it and it was hopefully fresh. Now we're doing fulfillment. So it's a much different gig than it was not so long ago. It really is. Michael Pollan, who wrote The Omnivore's Dilemma, talks about food and food-like substances. And he talks about this sort of technology that was injected into the, the food chain post-World War II. And so if you're looking backwards, you're really looking at people having this desire from a safety standpoint to have food that was non-perishable. So you're looking at canned goods and things like that. And I think what we're experiencing uh, is really a desire for people who, you can't talk about this without talking about social media, really a desire for people to be interactive with brands that are selling 
And those brands are getting immediate feedback oh, yeah. on that product. I, people are buying more and more on Instagram and TikTok. I'm not on a TikTok, not because I don't like the ownership, but beyond that, I'm afraid how much time I would waste on it. I have my grown, <laughs> my grown adult friends are like sending me TikToks all day. I'm like, did you quit your job? <laughs> what are you well, doing? It's the whole world but out people there. are buying on they're buying on those. But again, you think about going back to your experience with Clorox. We bought Clorox because we recognized the brand. We went to the store. I don't know. I buy Clorox and my mom bought Clorox. I don't know. I, I, I have no idea. Maybe I heard the commercial enough times. I just buy it. But now the brands, there's so much more. Th- not putting Clorox down to these older brands because they're very thoughtful in what they're doing. But the newer brands really are connecting through the social media and people buying it are, by the way, I, you mentioned Apple. Buying Apple is almost like being part of a club, being part of a, I don't want to say a cult necessarily, but they truly believe in Apple stuff. And I am not part of that club. I'm an Android guy. And I've heard people complain about Oh, the Android people, their text messages show up as a different color. And I'm like, we're, in a, we're being excluded from the club. <laughs> You're locked out. Yeah, if I text you, it's going to turn green. But I think what's interesting about that is that there's really, there's a virtuous cycle that happens, which is these brands that are building a direct-to-consumer following are really achieving a following that earns their way into sitting on shelf inside of retail. Yep. Yeah, we've and seen so that. We what's, this, the, what's the glasses yeah. company? I forgot the name of the, the glasses Warby company. Warby Parker? Yeah, Warby Parker. They were online. And then I noticed their stores a few years back in Ann Arbor by my house. And we're seeing, I, I don't still don't understand the mattress companies, the purple brand, all those. I'm like, I don't know how people, my, one of my daughters bought, she goes, oh, I love this mattress. I bought it online. I'm like, I went to the <laughs> mattress place by my house. So many times they must have thought I was homeless. I was there so much. And but I was <laughs> trying the beds out. I don't understand how you buy a bed without trying them out. Now they're starting to show up in stores. They are. Which makes That's exactly that right. makes sense. And I think that it's the omni channel that we're which as if the retail channel wasn't hard enough and as if the direct to consumer wasn't hard enough. Now we are asking to do both and then throw in Amazon, TikTok. I seen TikTok advertising on YouTube. That it's a shopping marketplace. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. So we noticed that because I do have an ad tech background, I'm very fascinated by the concept of demand generation and how it impacts the supply chain. The worst thing that you can do as an advertiser is try to sell a product that you don't have inventory for. Conversely, if you have too much inventory, there's really no amount of demand generation that will sell through. Again, just using that Peloton example. And so we at Flowspace became obsessed with this channel, social commerce, and started publishing research on it about two years ago. And we had TikTok approach us and say, hey, we see that you're enthusiastic about social commerce. We're looking for fulfillment partners in the U.S. And so Flowspace actually launched in August of 2023 as the first ever U.S. fulfillment partner for TikTok shop. And what we came in with was a very strong point of view which said, hey, we understand that if someone is choosing to purchase where they are in relationship with that content creator, whether it's the brand itself or it's influencers or it's micro-influencers or it's their friend who just bought Fitbit, Whoop, Apple Watch, whatever it is, and they're posting about it, 
that experience of unboxing is really thanks to a positive fulfillment experience. Or conversely, every once in a while, you'll see the story of I ordered a dress and I got a rock or something bizarre that happens in the exceptions. And what we said was for social commerce to really be successful, you have to create that same confidence that you're going to get what you ordered as someone feels when Joe goes and shops on Amazon. You have total confidence that you're going to receive what you ordered. And for a marketplace to scale in the same way, like a TikTok shop, they really have to have reliable fulfillment partners. And we were named Miracle's first U.S. fulfillment partner in June of 2022. Miracle powers more than 400 marketplaces around the world. They power the marketplace for Macy's. They power the marketplace for Urban Outfitters and Anthropology. And we have the same kind of conversation with them, which was if you've got a really long tail of suppliers, you have to make sure that they're actually sending what people have believed that they ordered. Otherwise, you're really destroying confidence in the marketplace model overall. And I think also when we think about retail logistics, that, that's the cost is lower on that than it is on this direct to consumer. And so we there's different costs associated. And I always think I'm an automotive guy originally. So our logistics cost is like 5% of revenue. And it's because we're, it's very predictable. We're shipping to dealerships. We're picking up at the same suppliers for the last hundred years. And even the stuff coming from China, it's coming by boat, which is relatively expensive per unit cost. And, um, but then when we get to direct to consumer, I think the cost is like 20, 25% for that. So that cost is very different. And again, when we talk about something that's perishable, the cost of keeping it safe. And again, we didn't talk about it, but there's enormous fed regs that you guys no doubt have to meet that. And again, most, I, I talked to you today before we hit record about a few emerging brand stories. People call me and say, can you help me? Can you direct me to someone? Most times I say, no one can help you with that. I've said it. When you want to deliver fresh dog food, somebody wanted to deliver fresh dog food. I was like, I wish you well, but I don't know who to refer you to. And you guys now can do that because for an emerging brand, many will just say, thanks, but no, thanks. We can't do it. That's right. The challenge of scale is really painful for these emerging brands. And again, you see them building up these social followings. And if you think direct-to-consumer is expensive, wait until you get hit with chargebacks in retail because you have missed some sort of compliance requirements. And so part of what we did, this is more than two years ago now, is we're hearing over and over from our clients, hey, we're getting into retail, we need EDI. EDI is a transmission format that is older than the fax machine. And it is the retailer will essentially telegraph you this document that says, we're putting our order in and you have to telegraph back to them. We have received your request. And then you have to telegraph back to them. We're sending it. And am, am I right to say that the EDI um, connection is often very <laughs> difficult to get? It doesn't happen overnight. <laughs> That is the pain point that we chose to focus on. Again, it was a little more than two years ago now because we were hearing it so often. And so we had come out of this belief that direct-to-consumer was going to be our core focus. And what we learned was that the biggest pain point that these brands had was not in direct-to-consumer. They could figure out how to get that right. They could figure out how to balance their costs. McKinsey says that your cost of fulfillment should be somewhere around 20% or less. You said 20, 25 to 20%. 
for direct-to-consumer, the biggest challenge that they had, the unmet need, was actually once they earned that right to be placed into retail, which is if you are not transmitting your EDI correctly, you get dinged. And if you end up delivering that product late because there was some sort of miscommunication, you get dinged and there's a charge back here and a charge back there. And all of a sudden you've seen your margin diminish terribly. And so a lot of brands, if they're not getting it right, that is existential for them. And so we feel very lucky. I shared with you that we are a partner to a company called Pod Foods. Pod Foods is essentially a next generation competitor to a Kehi or Unify. They are your agent to get you placed into grocery. What Pod Foods said was, hey, that's what we do best. We are the agents. We have the relationships. You do the fulfillment. And so they have two different programs. They have Pod Express and Pod Direct, where if you're an emerging brand, they're going to broker that relationship for you, but we're still supporting on what is essentially, think of it as like a drop ship versus if you are at scale, they're going to be supporting you on your fulfillment, just like those legacy brokers. And, and it always comes back to if you're an emerging brand and you're doing food, and that is no doubt your background, that's your passion. And somewhere along the line, you figured out how to get some demand online. That's again, a completely different skill set that you had to acquire. What's really challenging is to say, okay, now we're going to open up our own warehouse and start fulfillment. And a lot of times they find them doing it out of their house or out of their garage It's or some shared space. It's difficult and it's not cost-effective and you're not no longer worried about your food brand as much as you were worrying, how do I meet all of the requirements of shipping and doing it efficiently and effectively, which is not easy. So that's why these emerging brands are partnering with you. Do they need to be a certain size to work with you? We do have a, a minimum, and that has more to do with the fact that our software analyzes your order history, and then it actually recommends optimal placement for you to get as close to those customers as possible so that you're achieving something like an order time in full for 90% of your customers within two days on a ground service basis. That's the goal that most brands are looking at is something like two-day ground. And what we've been able to do, we have more than 150 fulfillment centers around the U.S. that we are partnered to that are running our software. And so we're able to look at that data and truly place in the optimal location. And I think the challenge that other organizations that look like a flow space is that if they're asset heavy, if they actually own warehouses, they might have four and they might have five. And all of a sudden they're recommending that you should be in Atlanta. Why should I be in Atlanta? Oh, that's where our warehouse is. <laughs> and you look at that and say, no, that's not what's best for the merchant, for the seller. Yeah. I said this before we hit record. There's companies like yours that I like your model that you're res fully responsible. So you have your customers and you're never going to say, oh, the warehouse in Peoria didn't do what they were supposed to do. You're like, no, that's on us hundred percent. So you would take ownership, but you have these partners and I think you're bringing business to these partners, which they're probably really happy. You're bringing technology and a process and saying, you got to do it our way, um, run your warehouse any way you want. But for our business, you got to run it this way. And I'm pretty sure that aligns anyway. But what's also nice is if there's a change of ownership and let's just say a location in Alaska, or I don't know if they're out in Alaska yet, but in California closes or stops performing to your liking, you go, we can bring somebody else up. And it almost reminds me 
of a freight broker. A freight broker is 100% responsible for the business, but they have partner carriers and they're working with those carriers and their customers also. And But if one starts failing, you go, okay, we need somebody else for the Detroit to Atlanta lane and we'll find one and we'll get, we'll get them set up. And in the meantime, if you have 150 locations, you've got pretty much the country covered in more than twice. <laughs> it's really twofold, but I'll give you the, to bring this back to the football analogy, we are a championship team and you earn your spot. And if you are not performing, there's someone on the bench behind you who's ready to go in and, and actually make that play. And so we have been able to set very high standards around SLAs and performance. There's a lot of training. There's a lot of coaching. We're also working with experts. We're not coming in telling the warehouse that we could operate the, the warehouse better than they do. Really what we're doing with the software platform that Flowspace has created is to actually connect that location with other locations that we have recommended to that brand to ensure that they, again, are as close to their customer as possible. And I'm incredibly proud of the partnerships that we have created in terms of holding each other accountable for functionality in the software that lets them do their jobs. Um, but us being able to really have that combination of software service and SLAs where it's really a three-legged stool. If you're missing any of those three, if you have good service and SLAs, but there's nowhere for that customer to go check on their order health they're going to come ask you, hey, where are all my orders? And you don't have time for that. You don't have time to staff that. And the, the same is true with the other two aspects. Yeah. And by the way, also right now, we talked about before we hit record, we don't have to belabor the point, but certain markets, the cost of warehousing space just skyrocketed. I think we know Reno, certain places in Los Angeles, where the cost of operating those warehouses went through the roof. And some friends of mine in Reno said, we're in Reno because it's, it's one day shipping to LA. If you're in LA, it's one day shipping to LA. So we're way cheaper. So we're in Reno. And I don't know if Reno's cheaper than LA anymore because it just, the cost there went way up and the cost of labor went way up. And all of a sudden you go, can we be somewhere outside of Reno? If you own those buildings, <laughs> you would be in a jam. Well, you'd be constantly right. saying, you'd be constantly saying, we need to close down Reno and move 30 miles away. Because the truth is that we get two, two different kinds of requests. There's actually three as I talk it through. But what you're describing, let's just say that all they're trying to do is store excess capacity. They overordered on raw goods supply, something like that. They don't want to be within a day of Los Angeles. They want to be at the cheapest real estate possible so that they're not paying a premium for storage, for example. Direct to consumer, we can map very carefully. The third example is when you're selling into retail, Target has something like 32 to 34 regional distribution centers. If you're selling into Target, we actually go and we re-optimize your footprint with flow space. And we say, hey, you need to be fulfilling into these 14 locations. Let's move you to these four nodes instead of these three you nodes. Guys are, you guys will guide them through because you've seen successful exactly right. brands and that's what you need. I think... You mentioned partner and everyone wants to use that term, but um, if you're an emerging brand, you need a partner who understands the omni-channel and retail. And again, tell me where my stuff needs to be. And That's so exactly right. We, always, we say we're not order takers. We are consultants to you, which is a lot of people in the early days would come and say, 
oh, I'm in Phoenix, Arizona. I want a, a warehouse in Phoenix so I can drive over there and see <laughs> my inventory. And we will say, no, your data says that you should be in Chicago. We're not putting you in Phoenix. And we're willing to have someone walk away because half the time they come back and they go, oh my God, you're right. No one would say yes to me. And then the other half of the time, if we were to say yes to that, we're not actually helping them fulfill more efficiently or more effectively. If we're just saying yes to you, they want to be in Phoenix. And so we really come at it with a true belief that we are here to create value for the customer. Yep. And when, before we end this thing, I want to talk to you a little bit about consumer experience. We touched on a little bit, but please elaborate. Social commerce as a channel has emerged as an opportunity for brands that are talking about, yes, their products but also the experience that you have with their products. And so if we look backwards, I actually think Glossier is a great example of really doing this. The founder had a, a blog where she would have people talk about their makeup routine. And it was, of course, very attractive people who were putting on incredibly light amounts of lotion and makeup. But what she was doing was she, Glossier as a product didn't even exist yet. The, the blog was focused on what is my beauty routine? And so she actually used that almost as data to go say, oh, people really need a better moisturizer. <laughs> people really need a better lip gloss. And what they started doing on social really early on is that they would feature people who were doing their full routine. Yes, there might be a Glossier product, but it wasn't the whole thing. So it wasn't right. a hard sell. It was very organic. I've seen that young lady and it's crazy because you think about the established beauty brands and she just basically just showed up with you know millions of followers and said i'm now part of the game <laughs> and you're like emily weiss is fascinating she there was a book that just came out i, I haven't read it yet but it's on my studio which is I, I believe she was an intern at vogue and she was just really passionate about beauty joe i think that's what people experience on Instagram on TikTok with these founders who are creating nutritional supplements, sauces that you cook with. We have this amazing client, a guy named Vincent Bradley has a natural supplement shot called Proper Wild. So you think of an energy shot. And he came at this business with just a total passion for the fact that he, he didn't really like drinking coffee. And when he would drink those sort of classic energy shots, they would hurt his stomach. He felt bad afterward. And so you're encountering this person who is really living the product that they have founded. And what he has started doing, it's a beverage that's very heavy. So you need to optimize your network. This is what we worked with him on really early on. But he also was really at the forefront of managing subscriptions. And so we're having a dinner at a, a client dinner maybe two years ago now. And he was telling me this story. And I was complaining because I tried to cancel a, a business magazine that I subscribed to. And it was uh, like a horrifically difficult experience to cancel this business <laughs> magazine. And I had, was saying to him, I'm never going to resubscribe because they were such creeps to me when I was trying to cancel. And he said, oh, we're the opposite. If you want to pause your subscription, you text us. And if you want to cancel, we say, thank you for everything. We can't wait to have you back. And he was like, the easier that we can make it, we're gaining your trust. And so I think of a brand like Proper Wild, and what he has done is really put the customer first. 
And then the relationship follows that. And I think with social commerce, that's what we're seeing as well. well. What's crazy, and it really is changing the way the world works, is you think of traditional brands. Now I watch a lot of college football on TV and all the insurance commercials with Progressive and all those. And those are, I, I always say, those are traditional brands. And it's because the way they're developing is through TV. But there is this whole other world of YouTube and TikTok and Instagram and, and the podcast. I've said this to people for the last few years, and I don't even think it's I don't even think it's debatable. The most influential person in media is Joe Rogan. And I think it's well over a billion downloads a year. Nobody plays in that neighborhood. Nobody. And by the way, he's not bought and sold by anybody, which I think is part of the appeal for some of this, where you go, I think it's just as he would say, I'm just a guy, a comedian who likes to wrestle and uh, get high. And you're like, all right, I'm in. I'm, I don't listen all the time, but I do. When I listen, I don't ever think Joe's being fake. I don't always agree with whatever he has to say. I don't care what, I don't have to agree with him. But that's what's interesting about these brands. It's not at all manufactured. If right now Joe Rogan was to be put into late night TV, they'd say, here's what you need to do, and he, which, he, which is why he would never do it. So I think it's really, we're seeing a change in the way brands develop. And I think getting back to once you develop that brand, you're going to need a partner. And that's why you guys are there. That's right. The authenticity that I have seen, the LinkedIn community around consumer package guides is is so sweet. It really surprised me. I think it's been the happiest evolution I've seen on social media, which is these brands are so supportive of each other. If they get shelf placement, even competitive brands are cheering them on. And the other aspect of it is them sharing their challenges as founders and really coming together collectively to encourage each other, support each other, comment for each, all the things that they have started to do. And we really consider ourselves part of that. I'm not just, I'm not just waving through the window. We're really looking at flow spaces, the reason why they become successful because they have to control their costs in order to scale effectively. If your costs are out of whack and you start to scale, you lose your shirt. And so our, our goal has really been to be a true partner, to be tough to them sometimes when they want a warehouse for the wrong reason, to be very data-driven, but to really put that end customer first, to say, hey, you want to charge them as little as possible for that shipping if you're going to charge for it at all. You want to be able to manage returns so that they can buy with confidence. If it's a perishable good, FlowSpace powers fulfillment for Del Monte, 30 refrigerated facilities around the U.S. That's a fantastic placement if you're a brand that's selling a, a perishable product into retail. And so we have just at every step of the journey said, how can we show up as the best partner possible to these brands that are trying to scale and it's emergent. We're not, there's some other platform out there that we don't know about yet uh, that everyone's going to need to be on in about two years. And we're just going to learn as we go. Yep. And I do think we're also starting to see warehouses really become segmented where there's going to be some, nobody's going to want to go and say, oh, you guys do auto parts here and food? Like, oh, and you do apparel too? That's fantastic. No, we're not going <laughs> to see that. Nobody wants to, you can't specialize in everything. You have to pick a niche and you guys definitely have. So I'm going to summer, by the way, before I forget, I'll put a link to your LinkedIn profile, a link to FlowSpace and any other links that you and Alice in your marketing lead give me. I will put in the show notes. So we talked about 
We talked to Ann Halleck and we're talking about perishable foods and why the bar is just so much higher on perishable foods, all the fed regs, all the safety, not easy. Uh, next, we talked about the how you serve emerging brands that are trying to figure out not only how to do direct to consumer, but how to get on the shelves at the retail because it's not enough just to be direct to consumer anymore. I'm sure there's some brands that are very successful that way, but everybody wants more. And I think the consumers want that choice. I want to buy what I want to buy wherever I go. And last we talked about consumer experience. The brands do such a good job in the stores and probably on media, social media, on this is our product. If it shows up very different and ugly, and I just paid premium dollars to get it to my house, I'm going to be very unhappy. <laughs> so the brands need the experience, the unboxing experience, everything to fit. And that's not going over the top. I think not so long ago, we got stuff where you're like, God, I'm throughout a whole huge box and 30 flyers that they stuffed in it. I feel <laughs> like I am a, I'm an eco-terrorist today. I hate that feeling. It's got to be the right fit uh, to fit the brand. And then we talked a little bit also about the kind of the technology and the merchandising and the ops all coming together and having to be just right. It's not enough to say we're really tech centric. We know tech like the back of our hands and we'll figure out the ops later and we don't do merchandising. <laughs> that worked like a dream a few years back, less so today. It's a three-legged <laughs> so, stool. It's a three-legged stool, which is if you don't have the software, the service, and the SLAs, that sweater isn't arriving at Joe's doorstep. Right. So final thoughts on it. Put a big, pretty bow on this one, Angelic. <laughs> Joe, I'm so grateful for the time, the energy that you have in these conversations really brings the logistics of logistics to life. The stories that we have underneath each of these brands really fascinate me. We emerged out of an unmet need that our founder, Ben Eaches, had when he was early at The Honest Company, which is that there was no way to reliably source fulfillment partners without taking an absolutely massive risk by moving your inventory to someone who may have been unproven and what Flowspace has created since 2017 is confidence for brands to scale effectively with a single software platform where if they're an army of one, if they're a founder or if they're the only supply chain leader inside their organization, they can really do more than they might have imagined because they have a reliable partner in place. Awesome. Awesome. So what conferences will we see you and the fine folks from Flowspace at? Out and about this year, the one that I might be the most excited about is actually Sub Summit. It's in Dallas in June, and it is specifically for brands that have subscription products. And the reason why that fascinates us is that is probably the highest stakes that you could have as a brand is that your customers have not only voted on you once, but they've actually put their credit card down and said, go ahead and charge me on a, a monthly basis. So Sub Summit's going to be a lot of fun. Of course, we're going to be at Shop Talk. Always really high quality meetings there. And that's really the first half of the year. We're doing a lot of private events. We're actually having a lot of dinners and markets. So if I get up your way, I'll have to have you come to one of those. <laughs> Thank you so much. I love what you guys are doing. And I think it is, um, it is an area that we're going to see so much growth. I think if we were talking five years from now, there's going to be 
and I, I don't want to be disparaging it, but when you think about all the malls that we grew up with and all the strip malls that are out there, there's some of these old retail um, brands that you go, that is not going to last. It's they're hanging on for years. I can't help but think there's going to be new entrants that are going to be all about emerging brands. And again, I think some of the more exciting brands now that we see out there, then again, I, Aldi, Trader Joe's, just some of these stores, Costco, I love Costco so much. <laughs> Those brands have fewer SKUs, but they really, they went a different route and it's worked. And I think That's we're right. going to see more and more companies say, can we do this better? Can we come at this from a, a DTC perspective and open a retail location? And so I'm looking forward to what's next in this space. It is it's so vibrant. And again, I, I really have no idea where it's going. It's so much fun. It's fun to think about. Possibilities are endless. And I love talking to you. I love what you guys are doing. So again, I'll put a link to your LinkedIn profile, link to your website, any other links you and Allison give me. One last time, who's the sweet spot for you and FlowSpace? FlowSpace serves emerging brands that have a need to make sure that they're executing not just in direct-to-consumer, but moving into retail effectively to control their costs and operate efficiently. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks again for taking the time, Anne. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Joe. And thank all of you for listening to my podcast. Your support's very much appreciated. Until next time, onward and upward. You have been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage with leaders in the logistics and supply chain community. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, hit the like button, and leave us a nice review on Apple or Spotify or wherever else you listen. Also, please check out our videos on YouTube and connect with us on LinkedIn. We're very big on LinkedIn. And you can also reach us on the logisticsoflogistics.com, our website.